0: The Telegraph. the Telegraph.
1: Podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Technology Intelligence Podcast with me, Harry de Ketville. In today's episode, we're going to look at the future of work. There's been a lot of discussion about the arrival of automation, artificial intelligence and robotics, with some commentators seeing these innovations as a fundamental threat to the future of work as we know it. Of course, those involved see these technologies as making great strides forward, which will bring benefits to all, both economically and socially. So where does the truth actually lie? What if one day we arrive at a point where jobs have been replaced entirely by machines? What will we do with ourselves and how will we earn a living? Is the universal basic income really a viable solution? We'll be exploring these issues and hearing the thoughts of entrepreneurs who are disrupting the way we work today. Email is still looking a lot like letters. It is not made
2: for instant real-time dialogue, and chat is just
3: much better suited for that. This ultimate humanoid that's going to take care of the elderly or do babysitting or cook your breakfast is science fiction. That's not going to happen.
1: We'll be hearing more from those voices later in the episode, but first, let's head over to Cass Business School to get some context on work as we know it from an academic who has spent the last decade asking precisely these questions...
4: My name is Peter Fleming. I'm a professor of business and society at Cass Business School, City University of London. And my topic of expertise, and I've been researching this for the last 10 years or so, is the future of work, in particular, the way in which work is either going to change dramatically around automated technologies, or the way in which the employment relationship is changing, particularly with the rise of the gig economy and what some have termed rather rather negatively uh, the uberization of the workforce.
1: Okay, so let's begin with where we are today. What's the historical context through which we should define? work in western economies or post-industrial economies
4: we saw a major shift from fordism in which manufacturing was the center of the economy to post-industrial services where services and knowledge work become quite key whereas the manufacturing is usually being offshored to other countries that can do it with cheaper labor Now, this hasn't necessarily meant that the jobs that have followed in the wake of post-industrialism are better. In fact, one could argue that compared to those under Fordism, the skills required, the pay we receive and the management philosophy that governs a lot of these types of jobs has deteriorated in many ways. Wages on average in the OECD, particularly the UK and the US, have stagnated since the 1970s. And that's really kind of the background regarding uh, the causes of where we are now in terms of
1: employment and work. Now throw into the mix the arrival of the various technological innovations and we suddenly find ourselves at quite a precarious moment in the history of work. We are now
4: experiencing what some economists call the second machine age, whereas the first machine age was really about the combustible engine, electricity and so forth. And that certainly automated a lot of work. Did it actually destroy jobs? Yes, it did. You know, think about um, newspaper printing um, and a whole raft of other manual types of jobs that disappeared. Other jobs integrated with uh, with these technologies. So computerization, digitalization, we have to remember that it has been around for quite a while now. And it certainly didn't destroy jobs, but it integrated with jobs. So the typing pool, for example, was transformed into something quite different and the human component that remained tended to be a little bit less skilled than it was in the preceding situation. We also have to remember that with the second machine age, it's not necessarily only manual repetitive work that's in danger of being automated. It's cognitive work as well and this is where artificial intelligence, machine learning and cybernetics come into the picture because with these kind of emergent technologies, some envisage that service work, emotional labour, those types of jobs that we always thought would really require a human because it's not based upon simple mechanical repetition, those types of jobs may also be in danger of uh, being automated if we look at the history of industrialization, this kind of argument's been around really from the beginning. Even in the dusty pages of Karl Marx, he was worried about the actual replacement of the proletariat, the workforce, by the emergent steam technologies that were coming through at the time. And they certainly did replace a lot of jobs, but work didn't quite disappear in the way in which he envisaged. And that argument regarding the total replacement of the workforce by machines and today robotics has really
1: kind of popped up every 20 years or so. These anxieties regarding the end of work are not a new phenomenon and yet Peter states that some of his economics and sociology professor friends really think that this time it might just be different. We'll be catching up with Peter later in the episode as he shares some thoughts on how this might turn out in the long term. But next, we're shifting our focus, hearing from entrepreneurs who are changing the ways in which we work today. We'll look at the arrival of automation through the use of chatbots and robotics. But another rapidly growing sector is focused on communication and collaboration in the workplace. For today's service-centred enterprises, the ability to communicate easily and effectively, both with fellow colleagues as with other customers and businesses, is fundamental to a flourishing company. The first we'll be speaking with knows how important communication is and is using chat or messaging to improve how we do it within the work context. My
2: name is Johan Butting and I'm are running Slack's business
1: here in Europe. Slack is a collaborative working tool which was first built specifically for a team who were developing a computer game together, allowing them to share ideas amongst themselves, even though some members were working at a distance. Users are invited into channels which focus on specific topics within the project, so the relevant people can send and receive messages that are specific to them. Rather than messages being long-form and formal, like emails, it's often much more like a messenger conversation you'd have in your private life, short and colloquial. Shifting back to the computer game, after some time, it became clear that the game itself was running out of steam. But everyone who worked on the project was so delighted with how well the collaborative software they'd used had worked that the team behind it decided to focus their energies on developing that instead. And so, in 2013, Slack was born, and its growth ever since has been pretty remarkable.
2: We have today, like, nine million people who use the product every single day, Uh, We have, I think, by now, probably over 50,000 paying customers. So we have a lot of traction. We are, in fact, the world's fastest growing enterprise software company. And the product has become more sophisticated. But the core is still the same. And we are super focused on that, which
1: is making communication and collaboration better. So how did they achieve such rapid growth and success? Well, Johan thinks the fact messaging has become so important in our private lives means it's natural that messaging would also proliferate in enterprise or business tools. But that's not the only piece of the puzzle. Other pieces are the fact that we are so integrated
2: with all of the other important software tools that are being used in enterprises today. But you're right, messaging has also uh, contributed to that. And that is simply because I think it is a more simpler and better paced way of communicating. I think what is being used so far, email, email is still looking a lot like letters. It is not made for instant real-time dialogue. And chat is just much better suited for
1: that. Now, these collaborative tools like Slack and its competitor, Facebook Workplace, are clearly changing the way in which work functions and teams communicate, allowing individuals working remotely to stay informed and contribute, and cutting down on the need for meetings and conference calls. Additionally, it's been suggested that these tools give everyone a voice, encouraging the contributions of those who might have remained silent in other contexts, like large team meetings. But as we enter this period of rapid advance in artificial intelligence and machine learning, is it enough for these platforms to simply facilitate collaboration between colleagues? Or should we now be expecting these platforms to augment the experience? Well, Slack is already taking steps to integrate chatbots and through something they call the work graph, Slack is also improving functionality through artificial intelligence, helping you to catch up on the most important activities you've missed while you're away by analysing the channels and the colleagues you tend to engage with most and prioritising them above and beyond other, more peripheral information. But... Beyond these specific implementations, Johan feels that the broader picture with regard to artificial intelligence involves freeing up your time.
2: What it is really doing, it is taking away these burdensome, low intelligence, high labour intensity tasks, and it is automating those, and thereby really freeing people, including myself, up to use their intelligence and, and be more productive. And I think artificial intelligence, especially for businesses, um, uh, is that is really going to become its entire own industry in, in the next several years. I think, in fact, it will be much more important artificial intelligence for business than in the private world because the problems you are solving in business are so much better, so, so much more clearly defined that that is really where artificial intelligence can Uh, make a huge difference. And again, it is all about taking away these uh, high-frequency, low-intelligence, burdensome tasks.
1: Next, we speak with another entrepreneur who's also focused on software, but rather than innovating around collaboration, the interests of Andy Wilkins of BotSkill lie elsewhere. How can I help? Alexa, what is the GDPR? The General Data Protection Regulation is a new... European wide law that replaces... We
0: are experts in conversational AI, uh, which means that we have a number of clients that uh, we, we provide services to who use artificial intelligence to query big data sets. For instance, we work for the police and we provide access to Police 101, for instance, for the public through chatbots and other natural language layers. Equally, we've also built our own product called Chatimo, which allows businesses to uh, create chatbots for their customers to use. What we've done is create, I suppose, a solution that solves common business pain points for SMEs, Our first release of Chattermo is is, is allowing companies to answer frequently asked questions through a chatbot. So they use artificial intelligence to answer the same questions that get asked over and over again. A classic example where there's a small business holder who spends too much time answering questions, whether it's on their Facebook Messenger page, whether it's on uh, their website, whether it's through email. So what we're doing is we're freeing up time for those business owners who go and actually run their businesses and um, and deal with, I suppose, the more complex customer queries while the everyday repetitive questions
1: are answered through artificial intelligence. ...to
0: individuals in the EU. Okay, thanks Alexa.
1: One of the really interesting things about this as a technology is that you as a customer can speak to it in your own language, in the way you'd speak to another human.
0: Instead of having to put in a particular search query or click, 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 they can just say, I'm looking for this, or I need to find out more about this product, or I want to buy this, or and they can do it all in natural language, in whatever language they happen to speak. Um, and the, the the AI that we have behind that picks up the intent of that question, of whatever that phrase is, and accurately answers it or directs appropriately. And that's really where the clever bits are, um, the ability for our AI to pick up that intent accurately.
1: Not only can you use your own language, the artificial intelligence can also recognise when you're angry. In terms of
0: sentiments as well, we can highlight that, so we know when someone's angry, when they're fed up, they can be fast tracked, they can be put through to a human customer services representative
1: um, and get that extra care that they need. Additionally, the underlying technology has advanced greatly in the last year, with AI going from being able to answer just 30 to 40% of customer queries to now, where it's able to answer between 80 and 85% before even needing to go through to a human. And yet Andy feels in some ways there's still a frustration with chatbots following the hype that surrounded them over the last couple of years.
0: But I think that we now this year and and, and I think going forward, we are on the cusp of something really quite, quite exciting in terms of, you know, moving away from what are more commonly known as rule based chatbots, which is if it says this, you say that, um, into stuff that is far more driven by A.I., and also has the other layers over it, like the multi-language, like the uh, the sentiment, the tonality analysis, um, and then all the analytics that go with that. Because I think the analytics are are hugely powerful to provide insight into you know how how successful you are as a business in answering things um, for your own customers and and your employees. So where does Andy see the future of chatbots heading? When I talk about chatbots, I'm talking about voice and chat bots essentially. So our platform runs both simultaneously off the same set of data. So really where I see this going in, in, is, is a very seamless conversational layer that is through voice applications rather than necessarily through chat. I, I, I think where we're going to see the most change is is through voice and things like Alexa and Google Home and, 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 and others but I think that's really where the future of chatbots lies. I think this is a stage to get us there. But then saying that, if you look at you know Apple Business Chat, which is about to come on board, I think that's going to be a major step forward in chatbots as well. I mean, that's going to basically open up every business to communications through, through Messenger, which I think is going to transform the way uh, the public look at chatbots and and chatbots
1: servicing them instead of humans. And it's this thought which business owners might think sounds like a fantastic outcome. Yet you can quite easily imagine that it might not sound quite so good to those people employed in customer services. So before we return to Peter Fleming of the Cass Business School to look at the future, let's head over to Old Street to hear from our final entrepreneurial team. They're developing a collaborative robotic arm, affectionately named EVA. In under 15 minutes, Eva can be clamped to a work surface and easily programmed by a human co-worker, either through software or simply by guiding the arm through its required movements. Then Eva is ready to perform her tasks over and 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 over.
5: My name is Mustafa Al-Sayed, co-founder at Automata Technologies, which I co-founded in 2015 with Surya Chandra, who's sitting next to me. We're a robotics startup based in London, and we're working on collaborative robotics, which is a form of industrial robotics uh, that has been uh, popularized in the last decade, which basically boils down to uh, smaller, more affordable robots that work alongside Uh, humans rather than being caged off in a separate area of uh, a factory. Both me and Suryansh don't come from a robotics background. We were both trained as architect designers and we worked in an architectural practice here in London called Zahadid Architects uh, for five, six years. And uh, we worked in the computational research team there where we were exposed to advanced manufacturing such as 3D printing and industrial robotics. And that was our first foray into industrial robotics. Once you use that technology, you come to this quick realization that the public's perception of this tech is that it's very cutting edge and advanced. While it's actually quite opaque and difficult to use and quite old school in its approach to software and deployment and um, how users should be integrated into that technology. And uh, whether naively or not, uh, that's where the company started, where we thought, you know, on a hardware and software level, we could do this better. Taking a step back to understand the history of robotics,
3: Suryansh has the backstory. Industrial robotics is actually, n- if you consider the contemporary definition of a robot, it wouldn't even classify as a robot. Historically, anything that that did work was called a robot. Uh, but now it's more of a sense, perceive and act kind of definition where it senses its environment, it perceives what is ha- what's happening and acts accordingly. So like a self-driving car, for instance, would be classified as a as a robot. But an industrial robot is still as stupid as it was in the 1960s or 50s. The, the genesis of that was on the Ford production line, actually, uh, or was it GM? Uh, one of those two, I think, very early days. But essentially, the automotive was one of the first industries that produced a large-scale product at that volume. And if you think of it, it's a very complex machine, but it's made affordable to, to an individual. And that was a remarkable technological achievement. And that was only possible because of the high level and thirst for automation.
1: And yet, despite all this progress, Suresh explains that certain tasks are still beyond the abilities of even the most advanced industrial robots, and humans continue to
3: be much more adept at completing them. So in that way, uh, I think the the definition of robots that society has evolved to see, which is like this ultimate humanoid that's going to basically take care of the elderly or do babysitting or, uh, I don't know, drive your car or cook your breakfast, is, is science fiction. That's not going to happen. G-
5: given that background or context that Surya set up regarding um, industrial robotics, there's been this movement of collaborative robots. And that's more in the spectrum of robotics that we operate in? And it's this idea that robots should augment the workforce and enable uh, staff or team members to move on to more meaningful work rather than focus on the menial task and let the robot take care of that. Now, while that sounds all peachy, uh, the reality has been that, especially in countries like the UK or Europe or North America, um, industrial robotics is seen as the realm of capital flush businesses. And that's primarily because the technology has traditionally been very expensive. Due to a lot of innovation in the field of mechanical engineering and electronics... The price points of robots have radically dropped. We've seen this trend in a lot of other technology, the convergence of market forces from the East and technology just generally improving, bringing price points down. So uh, something your audience might be familiar with is consumer-grade 3D printing, which, you know, used to suffer from the same feature of being very expensive. And once a few patents expired and technology became affordable, the, the technology exploded in the public perception and in manufacturing. So this is what robotics is undergoing today. And what we're saying specifically at Automata is there's two things primarily that hold people back from automating. One is they see it as a very difficult technology to use. And two, they see it as I can't afford that. It's not for me. So we're trying to address both those issues here at Automata. So Automata is hoping to be able to produce its collaborative robot EVA for around
1: £5,000, making it within reach of most enterprises, They look to achieve this by ensuring that they're in control of all the manufacturing elements, and so they can keep costs low, and by building software which is simple to use. As Suresh says, if you can play Angry Birds, you should be able to program a robot. But if these robots can only deal
5: with very simple tasks, what makes it so exciting? You could say that these robots are still relatively basic. If you look at it in the context of the historic progression of this technology, we're in a phase where. robotic growth is increasing uh, the technology is advancing faster than ever before so it's dependent on the context you look at it in but generally uh, robots are very good today to do tasks that don't change over and over and over and over and over like the wires dangling in a car that in robot speak is called an unstructured environment which means that things can change over time a robot is not built to handle that just yet there are a lot of examples of that in changing they're very good at operating in structural environments when the same part comes in the same way each time, thousands of times, and he just keeps doing it. And I had a moment like this very similarly in the company where the team set up a robot to do a certain task, which is take a part from point A and place it in point B and then take it out and put it in point C. And it's something you would not imagine doing as a human for very long, right? It's incredibly boring. But we set up the robot, went home for the weekend, switch off the lights in the office, had the camera watching it. And you know, you would check in, you know, Saturday night while you're out at the pub and you see this robot doing this thing in the dark, and you come in on Monday morning and this robot's still doing this thing and you're like, you know, this is something twenty people built in a room and it's been doing that, like that trajectory is on its way. If this is where robotics is today, if this is what we can do and bring bring to people, like we clearly need another way to find more meaningful work for people because that is an undeniable force, right? Like, just this robot we've built. Like, it's just doing its thing and did thousands of parts over a weekend. It doesn't complain. It sits in the dark and just does its thing. So in that sense, robotics is a transformative technology. But yes... Relative to where it can be, especially with what we're seeing in the fields of software development and machine learning, there's a lot yet to come. Mustafa is clearly excited by the potential of Eva and the
1: possibilities that its automation and resulting productivity gains introduce. And yet, he also sees how it might have implications on jobs. But Suryash points out that the jobs which automation might pose a threat to are already in China anyway. So if anything, it could mean manufacturing's return to Britain, even if that doesn't necessarily mean more jobs. So where does Automata hope to be in 20
5: years? By 2030, I think at Automata we'd be super thrilled if something like a collaborative robot was seen in two ways. Uh, One increasingly moving away from this concept of uh, this technology that I can't access to just a tool, right? It's a thing you come in in the morning, you pick it up, you put it next to you and it starts doing its job. Uh, The same way you think of your smartphone, the same way you think of your laptop, right? It enables you to do your job that day. And if you can start to look at collaborative robots like that, that'll be an incredibly exciting future. And the other one is like, it's just simply understandable, or expected that especially in fields like manufacturing, you have a r- robot coworker that doesn 't mean it 's a humanoid walking around the factory that 's not what I mean, but it 's just your day to day involves robots and I think if you look at something like amazon's warehouses, that is the case today, and you know there was a great article uh two days ago about this where the head of automation for Amazon, of course he would say this, is that we employ more people in the warehouses that are automated than warehouses that are not because our throughput is higher. So I think a lot of us in the field of robotics are are, are gunning for this and we believe those two versions of the future are possible in the next decade and a half. Uh, we're not going to be in the place where we have incredibly smart robots walking around. So I think erring more on the side of caution than optimism It's a marginal change to the way we work, but bringing back the optimistic side is definitely on an upwards trajectory of change. Just looking ahead to the technologies that even we can start to leverage here at Automata in the next three years, five years, seven years, nine years in in a technological roadmap, the things you could be bringing to market will be uh, radically improved and very different than what people perceive as robots today.
1: So we've heard from our three enterprises, each of which are striving to improve efficiencies in the workplace, through improved collaboration between workers, using text and voice to query large datasets through AI chatbots, and finally collaborating with robots, who in the future might free up our time to focus on other tasks. In each case, the entrepreneurs speak of taking away the repetitive and banal jobs, but how far automation will go in the pursuit of efficiency is an issue which we're going to discuss next with Peter Fleming, Professor of Business and Society, who we heard from at the top of the show. So, how is all this going to work out?
4: You've got two positions. You've got a techno-optimist position that sees either robots and AI replacing the need for human work and thus creating more leisure time for us in which we all live happily ever after. There's an episode of Star Trek where they look back at us and feel sorry for us. They're still kind of toiling, you know, primitive, primitive situation in which they haven't allowed the full potential of technology really kind of take over and allow us to relax. And then you have the techno pessimist kind of point of view in which, you know, robots take over a lot of the jobs, but the institution of work still remains a forceful proposition in our lives. Not only do we have less jobs going around because they've been replaced by robots, but we are still told that if you do not have a job, there's something wrong with you. Um, And that's a kind of a very dire, bleak Blade Runner capitalism, I would call it, kind of future. When it comes to cobots, I would put that kind of in the techno optimist, everything's going to be okay category, in which we cannot stop the winds of change and the winds of progress in terms of technological development. Therefore, we will work with robots in a way that keeps them in check, in a way that doesn't de-skill our jobs and thus gives us leverage in the labour marketplace, and also that our wages will be high. And I just think that even though there are trends uh, in certain industries in which that might be the case, I think that um, it's a little bit optimistic. If you look at the historical development of automation and uh, technological infrastructures in the industrial world over the last 100 years, it has never, hardly at least, been used in tandem and in co-harmony with the workforce. It's always been designed to either A, lower the costs of labour, B, replace labour, Or C, make labour more efficient. It's always been in a position, largely at least, in a position of dominance. It's been a managerial
1: tool. And so what can we do about it? Is this progress of technology and innovation inevitable, regardless of whether it benefits society as a whole? none of that is inevitable.
4: For example, studies show that the same technology can be liberating to employees in one setting, but used in another setting to dominate them. So it's really about the social and management economic backdrop in which guides the use of of technology. So just because a robot can take over a job, its endogenous or intrinsic capabilities, hardly ever means that it will because of other factors, costs, Uh, resistance from the workforce etc etc so I think that there is a danger in many of these debates to kind of see it as an an inevitable process Um, and I don't think it is it's real people making
1: real decisions that can be reversed okay well let's imagine for a moment a long way down the line we find ourselves in such a situation what kind of societal shifts will be necessary to make it work? The institution of work will have to be decentered. We cannot have
4: a situation in which robots do most of the work, yet um, the work ethic, with all of its moral connotations, um, is alive and well. That would have to take a back seat. And other institutional forms would have to come in into take up the slack. Um, and that would not be capitalism, basically. Uh, Because for capitalism to work... As we learned right way back in in, in Keynesian economics, you know, the first lesson of Keynes is that labourers are also buyers, consumers. So if you have no workers, you've got no consumers and you don't have capitalism. So that's important to keep in mind. So if we have no more workers, which I think we should embrace, I would love to have a post-work future as long as it isn't one that's still wedded to the ideology of work. If it's kind of wedded to creative human development, if it's wedded to leisure If it's wedded to artistic endeavour or, you know, the betterment of humankind, you know, what better future could we hope for? That would be wonderful. But for that to happen, we would have to really kind of create a whole set of other institutions. So when it comes to income, uh, universal basic income would really have to be an important part of that for people to survive. And I think a universal basic income is the first step to really questioning the need for all of this labour that we are currently conducting in our society.
1: So, it's going to be fascinating to see how innovative technologies such as artificial intelligence and robotics continue to develop in the coming years, and how they'll impact our position in the workforce. Will they indeed free us from the toil of repetitive tasks, allowing us to use our human gifts and intelligence to work and collaborate with others productively and more creatively? Or will it demote us to second-class citizens with reduced skills and an inability to pay our way or generate our own salaries? Just take my job, journalism. Some jobs and reports which were previously done by humans are already being done by machines, rather formulaic things like, well, baseball reports or sports reports. But there are other jobs from opinion and comment articles, which I used to write in a section I used to edit, where you can see that it's very difficult to imagine robots fully taking over because that's an area which requires creativity and analysis, which is perhaps fundamentally human. And it's hard to see machines reproducing that anytime soon. Well, if you're interested in more of this, subscribe to the podcast for updates and remember to give us a review. To find out more about the Tech Intelligence podcast, visit telegraph.co.uk. And finally, if technology is your thing, you can hear a daily update on the latest technology news from the Telegraph by searching for Telegraph Technology on any Amazon or Google device. On the next episode of the Technology Intelligence Podcast, we look at the future of health. So until then, goodbye.